Luke chapter 12, as we are returning to our study of uh, the gospel of Luke, we find ourselves this morning in verses 22 to 34, larger section, and uh, and we may go just a hair long this morning because there's so much to say, but I want to cover this all in one lesson because there's just so much here that I, I think breaking it up isn't all that helpful for us. But I want to read for us, beginning in verse 22, and just let this text set on us as, a, as we think about our time this morning. And he said to his disciples, for this reason I say to you, do not worry about your life as to what you will eat, nor for your body as what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow, sow nor reap, They have no storeroom nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than the birds. And which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you cannot do even a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, But I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass in the field, which is today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he you, you men of little faith? Do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink, and do not keep worrying. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek, but your Father knows that you need these things. But seek His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to charity, Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes, near nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. As we begin our time this morning, I I want us to take a moment and help us in our grounding of the Word of God. So I want to, I want us to turn just for a moment over to First Second Timothy chapter three. Second Timothy chapter three. Of course, Paul writing to his young disciple in the faith, and wants to encourage him as he's about to embark upon the ministry as Paul leaves him behind in Ephesus, Paul has told him that difficult times are going to come. Why? Because the human heart is bent towards itself, bent towards following after its own self. And by the time he gets down to verse 16 of chapter 3, he's grounding all of Timothy's understanding in this very truth. And he says in verses 16 and 17, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, 
for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. It's important for us this morning, as we are going to be looking at Luke chapter 12, but I want to want to ground us here first. We, we know from these words that are the Spirit-inspired words by the Apostle Paul that all Scripture comes to us from God. It is not man-made. It is not brought to us by way of man's invention. It comes to us from God. And because it is from God, because He is the source of all Scripture, Therefore, we can conclude and have that implication upon our hearts that all Scripture comes to us with the undiminished authority of God. There is no higher authority to which we can turn for finding any kind of alternative to what God says. If God says it, if God describes it, if God explains it, then that is the final word about it. And all other words are just opinions if they are not saying the same thing with the same intent with which God said it and means it. And so 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 tells us that because the Bible is the Word of God, then the Bible is profitable. It is beneficial for all people. First, it says it is profitable to teach us. It's profitable for teaching. The word there is doctrine. It's profitable for doctrine, for teaching. That means that it tells us what to believe. God, in His kindness to us, has given us a, a, a document that tells us what we are to believe in a world that is confused about what to believe. God tells us, here's what you need to believe above all other things that are clamoring for your belief. Secondly, it reproves us. It is profitable for teaching and for Reproof, meaning that the Bible comes along and speaks truth. It doesn't just give us another one of options in which we can believe. It is the thing we believe. It is truth. And that truth confronts every kind of untruth that we may be believing. It reproves us. It shows us that if our belief isn't in what God says, then what we are believing is wrong. So the Bible is profitable to teach us, it is profitable to reprove us, and it is also profitable, number three, to correct us. It corrects us. It's, it's profitable for correction. In other words, it doesn't simply identify wrong beliefs. It turns us back toward what is right to believe. And then, fourthly, it trains us in that right belief. It trains us in that right belief. You say, how so? By building conviction. The Scriptures, when we 
take to them and hold them and and stand on them. It builds conviction in our hearts about what it says so that we then go on living by trusting it and thereby living righteously because of it. Why? Because it is equipping us. It is making us adequate. Equipped for every good work. Our equipping is done by God. He is equipping us for what He desires. But what the Bible says is comprehensive to change us if we will listen to it and live our lives according to it. And we ought to. Why? Because it is from God. It is from God who is the ultimate authority. He is the one who gives perfect truth. And so when we turn to a passage like the one that we are studying this morning, back in Luke chapter 12, you can go back there. When we turn to a passage like that, or any passage, frankly, in Scripture, we need to be listening to it with the backdrop of Paul's words to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. We need to have that on our minds. We need to be listening to it, knowing that this is from the mouth of God, and therefore what it says is absolutely true and is absolutely authoritative. That means that it must be heeded. It must be heeded if we are going to be living in honor to God and living in the blessings of God. A few weeks ago, remember, we we talked a little bit about Isaiah chapter 66, about the hard attitude of those that God uh, expresses His favor upon, which is an attitude that is wrought in the heart of those who believe. It is those who are humble, contrite of spirit, and who tremble at His word. Humility is that disposition of need. Humility says, I need. I need God. God, I need you. Contriteness is that disposition of remorse because of our sin that shows our need. I need God because I'm sinful and my sin keeps me from doing what is right. I I choose in my flesh at times to do what I ought not do. And contriteness is that disposition of remorse that says, God, I need you. And so we tremble at His Word. We come to His Word with trembling. Trembling is that disposition of reverent awe before God. Reverent fear because it is here in the Word of God that we hear God speak. So Luke chapter 12, verse 22 through 34 is a piercing passage from the mouth of God. But it's an extremely helpful passage if we will listen and heed what it says. I trust you noticed as I read it earlier that it is connected with what was already said by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in the verses that preceded it. Of course, Jesus already in chapter 12 has warned those who are following him, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware of this personal hypocrisy, of this outward religiosity, but inside you're simply someone who doesn't really believe what God says. It's hypocrisy. It's it's a leaven that is deadly. And so we talked about that in the first parts of chapter 12. 
And then a couple weeks ago, we spent our morning looking into the disposition of greed. The reality of greed in the heart. The issue of greed which, which is manifested simply by the pursuit of material stuff. We cannot categorize greed simply by the fact that it's money or, or the things of material goods, but also by the constant pursuit of a settledness within our life by means of the circumstances around us. Whether that be emotional settledness or relational settledness or any number of other ways we pursue the greed of self. All of it is the expression of a heart of greed. And where there is greed in the heart, there is always the twin sister of greed, known by the name worry. Worry. Greed can never get satisfied, and worry is fearful it may not be able to be satisfied. In other words, worry is the emotional outworking of a heart bent on the greed of self. A heart of self-satisfaction. So if greed says, if I can get more, or have my emotions settled the way I want my emotions settled, or get my circumstance the way I want, if that happens, then I will be satisfied. That's what greed says. Give me what I want, the way I want it, when I want it, how I want it, and then I'll be satisfied. And worry says, but what if that doesn't happen? What if I'm not satisfied? Well, God knows the heart of man better than anyone. And He wants us to know that worry can so occupy our lives that when pursued, when it's embraced and pursued, He and His Word are lessened in our minds and therefore they are minimized in our lives and we begin therefore to doubt what He says. And when we doubt what He says, we live according to our own thinking rather than to God's. So notice, Notice how Jesus begins here in verses 22 and 23. He says to his disciples, just coming off the heels of this entire section on the greediness of the heart, he says, for this reason I say to you, do not worry about life, what you will eat, nor for your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Now just at the outset, Jesus Christ is simply stating a, a fact because God knows the heart more than anything and God understands sin better than any one of us could ever understand sin. And the reality is that, that worry is, is bent out of this reality of greed. That's how he starts. For this reason I say to you. In other words, there are a whole host of avenues through which we can be tempted to worry. And Jesus here is, is boiling it down to the most basic just as an example. 
would have been very poignant in the agrarian society of the time. Those who were dedicated to Jesus Christ, those who were following him, had chosen to be on the road with Jesus. Life for them was one unknown after another. Particularly when it came to the basic necessities of food and shelter and clothing. Well, if they began to be anxious about that, then they would be spiritually hamstrung in their walk of faith. So Jesus lays out this command. Mark it down. It's not a suggestion. This is a command of God. God in his authoritative kindness and graciousness to us is telling us what not to do. He's not suggesting that we don't do this. Certainly there are implications if we don't, but this is a command of God. He says, do not be anxious. Do not worry. And that tells us, at least at the outset, that worry is something we can overcome. It isn't something that ought to be controlling us. It is something that we can overcome. And therefore, it tells us that to be anxious at all is to disobey a command of God. To disobey a command of God is what, folks? Sin. It's sin. Because it's a manifestation of disobedience. And since the sin of every believer was paid for in Jesus Christ on the cross, that means that the sin of worry, the sin of anxiety, was ultimately paid for by Christ, and we need then to put it off and learn what it looks like to follow Jesus. What specifically is worry? What is anxiousness? Well, it's interesting here, since it's right in our face, right before us, and the reason why Jesus is telling us to not worry because of the outflow of a greedy heart. What is it? Well, it comes from the root word, merizo, and it simply means to have a care, or to, to take thought of, or to really... To, to pull apart, some, some translations even have that in some of the places this word is used, to, to pull apart. In other words, when we are anxious, our heart, our inner self is being pulled in different directions, but by what? It's being pulled in different directions by our constant taking thought of whatever it is we believe we might miss out on or don't have. We're allowing our own thinking and our own thoughts to control our mind and our heart so that we're being pulled apart. The word is used many times in the Gospels. Several other places in the New Testament. Matthew's Gospel, it's used obviously in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is saying the same words here in Luke chapter 12. used in Luke 8, Mark 4, Luke 21, several different places. And it's, and it's all this idea of being, being pulled apart, letting our mind go places where it ought not go. So worry and anxiety is the, listen, it's the sinful care for 
and an absorbed thought about things that are only satisfied in God alone. Let me say that again. Worry or anxiety is the sinful care for and the absorbed thought about things that are only satisfied in God alone. Let me say it another way. It is thinking earthly rather than eternally. So anxiety in a person's heart weighs them down with self-imposed burdens. And what is needed is the ministry of grace and truth to be embraced in their heart about who God is and what God has done in order to remove that burden. That's exactly what Jesus gives to his disciples here. Notice what he says in verse 23. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. In other words, we have to reject the idea that our flesh continually tells us. We have to reject the idea that life consists of that which is of the temporal world. Remember what we said when we had greed? If I get it, then uh, this is living. Remember that? If I have whatever material goods that I desire in my heart, when I get that, boy, this is living. If I go on, have the, the bank account, the size that I've always dreamed of, if I can just get there, then that's living. If I can have my emotions settled to the extent that I, I believe they need to be settled because I don't like that turmoil within me, then that's living. All right, that's the idea. We've allowed our mind and our heart to be consistent on the things that are of the temporal world like food, water, clothing, emotions, feelings, whatever it is that we've decided we must have in order to live for life to be satisfied. Jesus says you must not define life that way. You cannot define life by what is temporal. That kind of thinking puts you on the same plane as the plants and animals. Life doesn't exist simply here. Jesus says life is more than a good meal. It's more than a nice outfit. It's more than having all of your feelings settled at any given time. It's more than having your emotions all in the right place at any given day. It's more than every relationship being exactly the way you'd love them to be. It's more than all of that. And Jesus, to see that, he says, first, consider the animal world. By the way, this is another command. Stop worrying. And how do you do that? First, consider consider the animal world. Notice what he says. Verse 24. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have no storeroom nor barn. And yet God feeds them. Do you notice Jesus linking us back up to the greedy man who said to his soul, soul, take rest, have easy, drink and be merry because I just built bigger barns. I got what I want. Jesus links that right here by saying they don't have a storeroom. They don't even have a barn. This is another command. And Jesus is using an argument from the lesser to the greater. In other words, you have to consider this if you're going to be helped out of any state of worry. You have to consider this. 
This is a must. If it is true for the lesser, then surely it is so for the greater. This isn't your human friend making up this kind of cure for you. This is God Himself saying this will be the thing that helps you. So Jesus refers to a bird in His illustration. In fact, a bird that was really secondary in the bird world, particularly one in Palestine, one that was everywhere and yet wasn't even considered useful even for the the basic need of life, which would be food. They didn't eat ravens. Every Jew, to every Jew, the raven was just a worthless animal. God had made it, surely, but it was worthless. Isn't it interesting that God used the raven to feed Elijah? And yet Jesus says here, God feeds them. God feeds them. That is simply to say that God gives them, that is, gives them who are insignificant what is needed in this temporal world. And by the way, Jesus uses some specific language. He says, God feeds them. He, he's not saying that God in general, he's saying the God who is your father. Your father is feeding the insignificant. Why are you worrying if your father will feed you? That's his point. That's the implication. Jesus is simply saying that something so common that functions as it's created is showing that God is the one who provides for it. So consider for yourself the sovereignty of God over you. Consider the lesser. And then consider yourself. Notice what he says at the end of verse 24. How much more valuable are you than the birds? Much more valuable. The point is clear, isn't it? It's, it's clear. We have greater thought in the mind of God, in the heart of God, than birds. So the authoritative implication here is if God takes care of the lesser birds, then surely God will take care of the greater who is you, his child, the one he created in his image. By the way, just a secondary note, just that alone should inform us that we're not part of the animal world and why evolution is nonsense. That's for a whole nother sermon. Implicationally, however, it's telling us that as those who bear His image, why would we ever worry and thereby equate the essence of life as earthly and temporal? Why would we ever worry about these kinds of things here? Someone might say, well, I'm not worrying. Or that's not me. I don't worry about temporal things. Well, if you worry at all, then, then you think like this. To worry just insults our sovereign God. It insults the one who created us and gave us our place in his creation. So Jesus says, if you're anxious, stop being anxious 
How? Consider the birds. Then consider yourself. I was thinking about this as I, we up here in, in the north have turkeys that just kind of go everywhere. Turkeys go across my snow-filled yard and, and God is feeding them. And I know He's feeding them because they come around every year. They're eating and nobody's... I'm not dropping bird seed for them. They're eating. God's feeding them. And, I, and that's a picture. God's sending them across my, my, my window as I look out and I should be thinking, well, why would I worry about anything? God feeds those rascally animals that just want to tear up things. Jesus says, yeah, consider them. And consider yourself in comparison to them because you're more valuable than birds. God will provide for you. And he says, secondly, consider the flowers. Consider the flowers. Go down to verse 27 and 28. We'll get back to verse 25 and 26 in a moment. Consider the lilies, how they grow they neither toil nor spin. But I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you? Verse 27 and 28 give us the second command to consider. This is a commanded consideration about who God is. And Jesus uses the flowers, the insignificant things of His creation. By lilies, He's meaning every flower that grows. He's not simply talking about just the lilies. It's anything. By implication, all plant life. Just look at the plants around you. Look at the trees. Look at the grass. Look at the flowers. The hills of Palestine would have been filled with wildflowers. But the flowers do nothing to sustain themselves. They don't do anything to produce the beauty in which they reflect. They don't work. They don't put effort into it. And yet here they are. Jesus says more beautiful than anything Solomon's kingdom ever had. Solomon's kingdom was such a kingdom that silver was like rocks on the ground. Kind of like granite up here. Everywhere else people pay high, high prices for granite. Granite we use for curbing up here. It's common stone. Well, that's how silver was in Solomon's kingdom. And we know from the Old Testament that Solomon had the finest of all things in this temporal world in which we live. And yet by way of comparison, Jesus uses him to say he couldn't even come close to the beauty that God has given to the insignificant flower. Once again, here we are face to face with authoritative, poignant words from the mouth of God. And they're here for our teaching. They're here for our reproof. They're here for our correction. They're here for our training in righteousness. Why? So that we might be adequate, equipped for every good work. Jesus commands us to consider ourselves in comparison to the plant world. He says they exist without any concern or anxiety. 
And they are here today and gone tomorrow. He says, so in light of their transitoriness and the beauty that they have, your sanctified logic ought to tell you that if God clothes that which is alive today and gone tomorrow in such a way, how much more will he care for you? Again, here is Jesus telling his disciples, this is where greediness will lead you. This is where the greediness of your own soul, the greediness of your own for self will lead you. It leads you to this place of considering everything as more important on the temporal world than that which is eternal. And so Jesus is telling us to believe who God is. And believe how and what God does. Consider sovereignty. Consider the sovereignty of God. Don't just blow it off as a theological relic in your mind and put it on your shelf of theological terms and doctrines that you know. Sovereignty ought to anchor your soul. Consider the birds. Consider the flowers. There's a third thing that we ought to consider here. He tells us, consider the absurdity of worry. Consider the absurdity of worry. Notice verse 25 and 26. And which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you cannot even do a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? <laughs> I love how Jesus says this. Jesus says it's absurd to worry because God is the sovereign one over life. That's in essence what he's saying. It's absurd to worry. God is the sovereign one over life. We have no power to add one cubit to life. A cubit was simply a measurement of 18 inches. We all know what a cubit measurement is because you have an arm. It's from your elbow to the tip of your finger. Roughly 18 inches. It's a short distance. And so whether Jesus means you can't add to your height a small amount, or Jesus says you can't add one hour to your lifespan, as it says here in the New American Standard, you can't add a small amount to your life. Either way, the absurdity of worrying about life is the same, he says. Worry changes nothing essential. That's the idea. Worry changes nothing essential. All the things that are worried about are unessential. They don't make up the essence of life. So what Jesus is teaching is simple and it's clear. We all know the principle. Jesus says, you can't add a single hour to your lifespan. So if you can't do a very little thing, you ever tried to add an hour to your lifespan? I mean, how hard would that be for a human to even do that? We couldn't do it. But Jesus says, it's a simple thing. You can't do even the simple thing. What's that? Add an hour to your life. What's he saying? God's the one in charge of all of that. God's the one who controls all of that. You have no essence for that. That isn't where life is lived. You can't do that. We know that principle. We hear that principle in our heart, in our mind. As Christians, we've heard it a thousand times. I know I'm not supposed to worry. 
So here's the implication of the question. If God is sovereign over all things, and He is, and if God's Word is authoritative, which it is, then why do we live anxiously? There is a sinful absurdity to worry. A sinful absurdity to worry. So how do we, how do we combat that? How do, how do we combat the temptation to be anxious? Well, let's answer the first question. Why do we worry? Because Jesus clearly gives us an answer here in this text. Why do we worry? Notice verse 28. He says, you men of little faith. You men of little faith. We worry simply because we do not believe. Sometimes we say, well, well, I'll stop worrying when God shows me everything that's true. No, believe what God said, and guess what will happen? Your worry will go away. Some say, well, I just don't know if God's real. Believe, and you will see. It's not about seeing, and then you believe. It's about believing, and then you see. It's about believing what God said, and then my worry begins to walk away. Believe what God said. Believe who God is. But what do we do? We go about seeking after and fretting over that which is temporal. Rather than live according to what He has said. We worry because we define life by the way the world defines life. By the way, our emotions define life. We worry because we desire to be out of circumstances in which we say, if those circumstances are right, that's how my life is defined. By the way, the earthly ways we have defined relationships in life. And so what do we do? We seek to fulfill that which only God can fulfill. And so because we believe little, we rest little. Rest little is just another way of saying we worry much. Jesus says, verse 30, your Father knows that you need these things. You have little faith. Don't seek what you'll eat. Don't, don't seek what you'll drink. Don't keep worrying. Three commands, boom, boom, boom. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Why? Because, because that's worldly thinking. That's how the world thinks. That's what the world strives after. That's what an earthly mind is set on. Don't set your mind on that thing. Your heavenly Father knows that you need all those things. He knows that. He knows what you need. So why do we worry? Simply because of this, we willfully choose not to walk by faith. It's a willful choice. 
It's a willful choice we make to say, I'm going to believe what my mind is telling me on the earthly realm rather than to believe what the transcendent eternal God tells me is true and right. And so I don't walk by faith in my minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day, week by week life. And I do not walk by faith, and that is to walk by unbelief. That's really what I'm walking by. I'm walking by my unbelief. And any time that I do not believe God for who He is and what He says, beloved, we have to be honest with ourselves and know that that is sin. And it's just sinful. When we sin, we must confess it and we must turn from it. So how do we overcome? How do we overcome worry? How do we overcome anxiety? Verse 31 tells us, seek His kingdom and these things will be added to you. You see, we got it backwards. We, we think if we seek these things, then, I, then when all that's settled, then I can get to know who God is. Then I can start following God. Then I have everything right. Then things will start going well. And what we've done is we flip-flopped it. And God says, no, you need to seek me first. Instead of seeking earthly, temporal, non-lasting things, seek that which is heavenly. You see, that's the answer. That's the answer. That's not the answer from from the world. That's the answer from God. God says, seek me. The world says, seek you. Just do it. Get all you can. Be all you can be. You deserve it. You've worked hard for it. It's It's yours. You're the oppressed one. You deserve reparations. You deserve something for yourself because because you've been oppressed. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe you have been. But doesn't God know that? Isn't God there with you? Isn't He walking with you in that? I mean, he, he, you are His child. He would never allow something in your life that isn't for your good and His glory. So if God has you there, isn't that where God wants you? Listen, Jesus is simply saying to us, as long as our minds are fixed on the earth, we're going to worry all the time. We're going to worry about every aspect of life here. But if we will do as we are commanded here, if we will seek that which God says because we know that He is God and always does what is best for us because we are destined for eternity, then we'll walk by faith. We'll trust what He said and live according to it. Somebody will say, Pastor, I can't do that. Yes, you can. Jesus isn't here saying to us, hey, listen, walking by faith is just so easy. Listen, your sin doesn't want you to walk by faith. Your sin wants you to do what you want. But walking by faith means following me against yourself. 
Don't be greedy for yourself. Be greedy for Christ. Be greedy for what He wants. You'll walk by faith. You'll trust what He said. You'll live according to what He is doing and what He says. Even when, even when your emotions and your feelings and your earthly thoughts tell you otherwise. It's really sad to me that so many times over the centuries, just that verse right there has been abused. Seek first His kingdom and these things will be added to you. It's been abused by so many people in the church. People claiming that the verse teaches us that if we give all kinds of earthly goods, He'll just pour it upon us in our lives. we got to give your life to Christ and He's going to give you whatever you want in life. Somehow earthly temporal riches are attached to serving God context here and in Matthew 6 is not about getting things, getting things here on this earth, but rather about what we already have been given. You see what he says? But seek his kingdom for your, verse 32, for your heavenly father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Seek for his kingdom. In other words, the way to be liberated from the slavery of anxiety is to engage yourself in the things of the kingdom of God. In other words, when your minds are set on serving as God has commanded and given you to serve, when our hearts are intent on sacrificing for others, and seeing the understanding of that, that God has done for us through Christ, when we see that increased in others and in the hearts and minds of others because we're serving others and we're following after what Jesus Christ said and using how God has gifted us within the body of Christ, when we are engaging what God has done for us in His kingdom and God is glorified in how we worship Him in those things in and through us, when that is our aim... Guess what? You'll have no desire or need to be anxious. Why? Because life here will seem so small to you. If we would be committed to His rule of our lives, if we would be committed to praying for others and work to that end as a disciple of Jesus Christ, then we won't be anxious. We won't be anxious. Oh, we'll have to battle it, sure, because it's right there. Notice what Jesus says in verse 32. Do not be afraid, little flock. For your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. It's clear. Anxiety not only is not only a result of little faith. He didn't say you don't have any. Because you're not exercising the faith that you do have. You have little faith, but it's the the manufacturing plant of all kinds of fears. That's what happens. In other words, anxiety is actually one form of fear that produces, like in a nuclear explosion, the chain link reaction to all kinds of fears. And all of it is rooted in unbelief. 
when we're overtaken by anxiety, it ought to be an indicator to us, not that we have some kind of mental problem, but rather that we are letting something attempt to pull us away from the settled trust in God. Jesus says, don't be afraid, little flock. Your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Think about it. Think about it. Jesus says to his disciples who are very distracted with the greed of self, which leads to all kinds of anxieties, he says, fear not. Yet another command. Fear not. Stop fearing. In other words, he speaks into their situation with the authority of the Godhead and says, fear not. And yet with tenderness, he says, little flock. The booming voice of God, fear not, my children. It's a wonderful picture, isn't it? Great description. I love it because he didn't say, ah, you stupid sheep. I can't believe you're anxious. He didn't say that. He said, fear not, little flock. Why? Because your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Stop fearing. Why? Because God is your eternal father. In other words, he reminds us of the goodness of our Heavenly Father. He reminds us of our relationship with God. Listen, God has made a commitment to you that is far greater than any commitment you made to God. If He's giving us the kingdom, then what makes any of us think whatever we are distracted and worrying about is more important than the kingdom He has given to us. What makes us think that, that having settledness in the internal sense of myself and having my circumstances all the way I want them and having my bank account at the number that I think would be satisfactory for the rest of my days on earth as if I know how many those are and what makes me think that the car I drive and the house I own and everything else and worrying about all those kinds of things, what school am I going to do, who am I going to marry, Whatever, all, all the things we, that we tend to occupy our mind with, if God has given me the kingdom, what makes me think that any of that stuff should occupy my mind when I have the kingdom to think about? He means eternal things. That's what kingdom idea is. Part of the problem with us today in evangelical church is that we've attempted to solve our anxiety problem the world's way. We, we attempt to solve our problems with some kind of behavioral coping techniques and pharmaceuticals that only mask the truth about what we actually treasure in our hearts. We treasure the temporal over the eternal. And as Christians, we have the opportunity to open the sufficient authoritative Word of God and allow it to minister to our souls. 
So we should see them any manifestation of anxiety as a window into our heart. And the Word of God shows us that what is happening is that our faith is being distracted away from the kingdom work. It's being distracted away from, from eternal work to earthly work. And what we need to do is get our eyes on our Heavenly Father who loves us beyond what we could ever imagine in the humanly realm and rest our needs and our emotions and our feelings and every care on His character. The statement here, God has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. That's the same words of the Apostle Paul, just in another way. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us, how will He not also with Him graciously give you all things? We go, yeah, I believe that, Paul. I love your preaching. And we walk away and worry. Beloved, worry and anxiety, anxiety it's an extreme self Focus. That's what it is. And the solution is an intentional turning our eyes away from ourselves to the Lord, just as Jesus commands us to do right here. We love to quote Philippians 4, don't we? We love it. Verses 6 and 7 Be anxious for nothing. That's what we do. We go to somebody, listen, be anxious for nothing. Yeah, great point. Right? But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We resonate with that. We love that. But you need to read verse 8. It says, finally, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, Whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, get this, let your mind dwell on these things. Plant your stake in the ground right there. Camp right there. Let your mind dwell there on those things. Not on the foolishness of your own emotions. Interesting in Philippians 4, the entire mindset of dwelling begins back in chapter 4, verse 4. And it begins with this command Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. That's a command. I say, what's Paul saying? He's saying to that settled joy in the heart comes from intentionally willfully turning our eyes away from the things of the earth onto the things of the Lord. That's where settled joy comes from. And then, and then the passage continues after that in verse 5 by saying, let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Then it says, do not be anxious. You see, that's where you have to start. Let your mind dwell there. The reality is, if your mind's dwelling there, there's no way you're going to be anxious. 
And then Jesus ends with this, sell your possessions, give to charity, make yourselves money belts which will not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes nor moth destroys. Why? Because where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. Treasure, that just means storehouse, barn. Here he is using the barn language again. You want to be greedy? Be greedy about the things of heaven. That's where your biggest barn ought to be. It's an unfailing treasure. Oh, worry is such a failing thing. It takes us places we never should go. Listen, we, we should be more giving and less hoarding. We should be more sacrificial and less uh, for ourselves. We should be more uh, hospitable and more fellowship amongst us as Christians than independent and isolated as we are. This is what Jesus is saying. Look, give, he's not saying, listen, you got to sell everything. And, and listen, if you're, if you're someone that holds to that and you own that and you don't want anything to take it, and when God, anytime God removes it, you're, you're discontent and you're worried about it and, and you're thinking about it, maybe you do need to sell it so it's out of your hands. God's not saying, listen, you need to live outside under the stars and never had a home to live. That's not what he's saying. He says, listen, that's where your heart is, then it's the wrong place. What do we do when anxiety attacks? What do we do? I came across this recently, seven practices. Seven practices recently that we can be very helpful in this area. And I'll just give them to you quickly. I, I said this was going to be a little long and you've been patient so far, but I just want to run through this really quickly. So get ready to write. They all start with R. Seven R words. Number one, recite. Recite. You want to help yourself with this in your life? Recite the Scriptures to yourself to combat your unbelief. Continue to tell them to yourselves. Mull them over in your mind. Have them in your heart. Talk to yourself about the truth of God's Word. Proverbs 18.10 The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Listen, put that in your mind. Let your mind dwell there. So recite the scriptures to yourself. Don't just mem memorize it and let it go. Recite them. Number two, remember. Remember. You could also say rehearse. What am I saying? Rehearse or remember all the things that God has done for you in your life. What the psalmist was doing. I will tell of the works of God. I will sing of the works of God. He, he's remembering, he's rehearsing in his mind those things that God has done. Psalm 103 verse 2, forget not all his benefits. So remember those things. Rehearse those things in your mind. It will show you the character and nature of God and how he always has cared for you. Three, respect. Respect. What do I mean? Well, just take conscious, conscious consideration of God's design for life here. That simply means that you can't just do whatever you want. There's an orderliness of life for yourself here. You know, you have limits to your own bodily functions. You can't do everything. You need rest. Don't make it an idol. But you need it. Don't neglect it. So respect that. Respect how God has, has 
created the worldly order in which he has placed us. We are still in this human frame and God knows that. He knows our frailties. So respect that. Number four, repent. Repent. Like I said before, anxiety is just, it's unbelief. It's sin. So we need to repent of that unbelief. And when we repent of something, we turn toward God. We turn away from sin toward God. So we need to commit our way to the Lord. We need to tell ourselves, I'm not going to believe what my mind is telling me, what the world wants to tell me, the world's ways. I'm going to believe what God said. I'm going to commit my way to that. And I'm going to pray for his strength in my faith to walk by it. And if I fail to that, I'm going to get myself up. I'm going to confess that before the Lord and I'm going to do it again. And every day I'm going to practice doing that each moment, every day, every hour, every week. Jesus said to his disciples, oh, you of little faith, and we should confess to the Lord. You know what? Today, uh, I'm just not doing well, Lord. Strengthen my faith. So be ready. He's going to give you opportunities to walk by it. Number five, replace. When you're convicted, when the Holy Spirit convicts you and you repent of that, then you need to replace that sin with righteous and holy living. Righteous and holy thinking. Replace the unbiblical ways you think about God, about His nature, and replace it with what is true. Anytime we're self-centered in our thinking, it's rooted in unbelief. And when you're rooted in unbelief, because you're rooted in yourself, you will have no joy. Zero. It kills joy. Number six, remain. Remain in the Word. Remain in the Word. Don't run from it. Remain in it. Abide in Christ, like Jesus said in John 15. Saturate yourself in the Word. Bathe yourself in the Word of God. Let God's Word speak to you. Let the Word of God tell you what you are to believe. Let that be what you believe. Because you know your mind can take you places and your heart, your sinful heart will take you places that, that are unprofitable. Let the Word of God tell you what to believe. Even when your heart says, ah... No, it's God who said it. No, it's authoritative. It came from the mouth of God. That's what you are to believe. That's the reality. Live there. Number seven, just rest. Rest in the Lord. Rest your body, rest your spirit, rest your mind in the Lord. Remember the words of Jesus. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Oh man, worry and anxiety is such a heavy weight. Come to me, Jesus says, all you are weary, you are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Do you believe that? Your heart's telling you, I don't believe that because I don't feel rested. Well, believe it. Trust God with it. Go there. He says, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. Because I'm gentle and lowly in heart. He says, when you do that, you will find rest for your souls. That's a promise. Don't doubt God. Don't doubt Him in that. He says, you go there, you will find rest 
Oh, at the beginning, it may be small. It may be little baby steps. You're just learning to walk if you've been encroached in worry and anxiety. It's little, but those little, those little glimmers give you that, that drive to go more. Like the child who crawls first and then begins to walk and then begins to run. And then it's hard to knock over. They're balanced. They're stable. That's where you'll be. It gives rest to your souls. Jesus says, if we do that, we will learn to be like Christ. and We won't be anxious. Why? Because that's where your treasure will be. Your treasure will be in the eternal, not the earthly. And where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. Let's pray. Father, such loving words from a gracious Father that we have. Almost like a coach in a locker room that's that we've come off the field and we're weary, we're battle-beaten, we've, we're behind in score and we, we don't know how we're going to get ahead. And, and you as a loving Father, encourage us and yet challenge us. Challenge us with the commands. This is what you must do. You need to do this better. You need to do this more. You need to be here more and on this more. Let your mind dwell here more and which means you can't do the old thing that you were doing. I know it's uncomfortable, but you you got to believe me. You must trust me. I know what is right for you. Oh, Lord, help us with that. Help us with that. I know among us are those that struggle little with this and those that struggle much. But you are a sufficient God. Oh, you've given us everything we need. You are the the one who cares for the soul. And this is soul work. Lord, encourage us in that. Challenge us in that. Encourage our hearts as we walk by it. Give us the joy of the Lord, even in the smallest of ways, that we might walk even more obediently to you than we have. Thank you for the forgiveness we have in Jesus Christ that there is no sin that cannot be forgiven because Christ paid it all. And so, Lord, help us run to you when we have sinned, knowing that you are our loving Father and we are your little flock. We love you. Thank you for our Savior who is our great example. It is in his name that we pray today. Amen.